Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. You're listening to Arabiyat with Linda and Sreya. I'm Linda. And I'm Sreya. So today we have a really special episode. Um, and this is particularly special for me because it's with a really good friend of mine from back home. It's a little piece of home in the Bay Area. We have in the studio with us Hamid Sinno, who's the lead singer of a little band, some of you might know, called Mashru'a Layla. And for those of you who don't, Mashru'a Layla are an indie rock band out of Lebanon. They just had their first U.S. tour and they did a show in San Francisco. And we were lucky enough to have Hamid come in. So Hamid, welcome. Hey. So you are known to sing in Arabic and that's one of the things that made you guys really unique. That you are this like rock band that uses like colloquial Arabic lyrics, but at the same time, I because I know you, is that you have an easier time communicating and expressing yourself in English. Mm-hmm. And I actually saw an interview where the interviewer was asking you questions in English, but she insisted you answer in Arabic, mm-hmm. and that all of you guys seem to be struggling. Right. Do you guys get a lot of criticism for really relying on English just in the way you speak, even though you sing in Arabic? Um, no. We don't. I mean, we did at some point towards the beginning, but I find I find these things to be sort of just like really, like it's really stupid criticism, to be honest. The fact of the matter is a big part of, you know, the Arab world ends up going to these sort of like colonial mission schools, right? And it's just the way it is. And us, you know, living living in translation is just a, it's, you know, part of the, you know, the Arab experience of, you know, sort of the Arab condition of like growing up in the Middle East for a lot of people. Um, obviously, that's also class-related and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but like, it still is a big part of what it means to be a Middle Easterner. Um, so for people to just write that off as like sort of being some sort of like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like alien sort of experience is just very strange for me. Also, you know, things have changed. We've been doing this for like eight years, so the difficulties that we had with a lot of the stuff that we were doing at the beginning aren't really there at this point. Um, like it's a lot easier for us to just like show up and do an interview in Arabic right now. You know, like I've spent eight years on Google Translate and and com, and you know the band has sort of just made my Arabic a lot better through writing and through all of like this stuff. You also mentioned that you hate the division of the way like it's defined as like Western music and Eastern music, mm-hmm. and how to define something as Eastern music is really Orientalizing. Do you see Mashra Leila in like a global musical context rather than like a specifically Arab musical context? I don't separate the context, to be honest, altogether. Like that, that distinction is still like weird for me. The way I see things is, you know, if you're a musician, like if you're anything else, you're just that thing. It's weird. Like a blues musician in Beirut is just a blues musician. If they're good, they're good. You listen to them because of that. You don't listen to them because they're you know, a, a, an Arab blues musician or a Lebanese blues musician. And then the assumptions that come with that are also just really dangerous, right? Like to be a blues musician in Lebanon, you need to use a derbeke and like put that in there and just come up with this weird like kitsch, right? This weird sort of orientalizing, sort of just really auto-racist stuff. You know, the way I see it is the band is a band that met up and just makes music the only way we know how to make music. You know, I've never really concerned myself with trying to appear more or less 
Arab. Like I just am Arab right. Right? for whatever that means or however, you know, whatever little that means. It's just, this is the color of my skin. This is the amount of hair I have on my body. <laughs> this is where I grew up or, right. or didn't grow up. Right. And it just is what it is. Um, right. And sort of working from identity to produce work is just really strange for me. That, um, that makes sense. But okay. So you're saying blues musician in Lebanon, you don't listen to him because, or her, because they're, they're Lebanese and they're doing blues. Right. You listen to them because they're good. Right. But at the same time, you know, when you talk about music, there is maybe not recently because of the internet, but historically there's always like a locale to it, right? There's like folk music. Well, of music. course, right? And it's, it's, it's also, it runs so much deeper than that, right? Like if you take music in absolute, music is always going to work on the spectrum with noise, right? And, and you're, you know, the, where you draw the line between the two, obviously that's a line that you go back and forth with all the time, right? People will appropriate noise and noise will appropriate music. But that distinction that you always make between like noise and music as a binary is something that's completely culturally defined, right? Like, noise in Beirut sounds different than noise in San Francisco. Walking into a bar in San Francisco sounds so different than walking into a bar in Beirut. Like people speak louder, people do stuff with their hands, you know, people honk more on the street, whatever, everything. Streets sound different, right? So your entire understanding of what noise is and then what music can be accordingly is also very culturally related, right? But I mean, past that you know, obviously, when we start talking about sort of trying to appear local in music, we know what we're sort of referring to, right? Where people just constantly bring up these like these tropes that are so dangerous of like sounding essentially conservative, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is what it is to bring up maqamat at this day and age and completely deist, like remove them from the Islamic origins of them, mm-hmm. um, and you know, just bring up stuff that people haven't done, like people have still been doing since the 1500s, right? Although. Shit changed, right? Um, and just say this is because we're Arab is a very dangerous thing. And for me, what it what it sounds like is basically someone defining, you know, just trying to define themselves as the other to something else. So being Arab is being the opposite of anything that is quote unquote Western. Mm. Um, and then we also have to sound like that, which is so dangerous. Like we go to work in suits, we use laptops. We're not like, I mean. We can just be real about it. We have access to the world the way other people do in a lot of places. Obviously, again, that's class-related, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, it's there. Right. So to not be authentic to that is essentially to, you know, not sort of be authentic to just being an Arab. It's to try and constantly produce this weird, distorted version of Arabness as the other, even when you're at home. Right. Which is so strange. Remember that band, that, like, rock band uh, in the early 2000s? Blend. Was it blend? And they had to, their like label was like, okay, well, you have to introduce some like derbeke or, uh-huh. or yentl sounds in the middle. And they had like such a big, they really spoke out against that. But that's the only way they were able right. to get their album produced and right. released is to introduce that. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with it. But there is something wrong with doing that and saying we're doing this because we're Arab, right? Where it's sort of just like sort of taking a piss at everyone who isn't doing that and still feels Arab, right? Like, right. You, you know, you don't get to like rob people of their experience under the premise of identity like it's it's collective identity for a reason but yeah so would you at all say that right now there's a sound that can be attributed to lebanon um i think it's really difficult to sort of look at these things when you're still there you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like at the time that it happens i think it, it has to to some extent have also been like that for people in other decades right like when you listen to punk or when you listen uh whatever like stuff that was 
obviously of its time, I don't know how easy it would have been for people to just like pull out and define stylistic tendencies or conceptual tendencies in music across the board because you're in it, right? Like it's not as easy to compare it to other stuff. I do hear a lot of sort of like griminess, right, coming out of like the Beirut indie stuff. Um, I think a lot of that is just like a direct reaction to how polished everything is on the radio back home. But I don't know. I don't know past that. I mean, the music scene and, you know, the independent scene in Beirut is so diverse. Like everyone plays everything. So um, before the interview, you were saying that, like, you know, we, I was telling you about, like, how it is to be Arab in, like, America and just kind of how we were a little more hardened than you guys in maybe in the homeland um, because you don't have to constantly defend the yourself. <laughs> the homeland, right? Like, whatever. What, like and, Dearborn? No. <laughs> well, in Lebanon or in whatever home country. Um, and so, but you said, I understand how it feels because when we travel for shows, we're... You know, that you're always the Arab, Yeah, so at and the end not, of the day, you're it's the not, Arab. It's not even just, like, in situations where, where like... We're necessarily trying to deal with people as musicians. Obviously, that just adds more insult to injury, right? When like you're trying to approach the world as a musician, but then you're always like reminded that you're either, you know, too brown or too gay or whatever it is, and that's what you are, past musician. But um, but no, I mean it's it's also just like you know the the real stuff where like I'm taking a flight to New York as an American citizen. Homeland's gonna pull, you know, like make like make the entire flight an hour late while people, are, you know, like waiting on the plane because they want to like grill me extra hard. Although, like, I'm sitting there, like, this is your passport, right? Mm. Like, I'm from here, mm-hmm. Um, mm. but you know, too brown, too hairy. Have you had any unique experiences or interesting experiences with Europeans or whoever, like Westerners, regarding you being like a rock band from the Arab world? Like, how have people um, responded to you? Again, like we've been doing this for a really long time, so it's not like there's been any one sort of consistent thing that keeps coming up. But obviously there's stuff that keeps coming up, right, in different places. We've had just like really great press in a lot of places, like people that have done their research, people that are obviously much more like nuanced about the way they approach culture and identity. And, you know, especially with Europe, there's a much longer history, I think, of people accessing Arabic music than than there is in the States, let's say. And it's, you know, it's not as sort of novel but then you get weird shit every now and then. There was one reporter in Italy who asked me if it was possible for me to buy CDs where I come from, and I kind of just wanted to slap him. <laughs> right? There's obviously people that go like, hey, how come your English is so great? And then you kind of just want to go like, hey, how come you know nothing about the history of colonialism? <laughs> and, then, and then there's the really weird stuff is the stuff that's actually best for the band, right? Which is when people do this whole like voice of a generation thing or sound of the Arab Spring thing. When it's just like, this is inherently super, super racist. To start with, the Arab Spring is this thing that was essentially coined by Western media to try and lump together a bunch of very different political events that were sort of coinciding, right, in time, not in place, not in principle, not in politics, not in anything. And that alone is already pretty bad. But then to like single out, you know, sort of like a band of, you know, five males with access to certain privilege from Beirut and say that these five dudes are going to speak for that entire friggin' region. It's just like, it falls right in line with a much longer tradition, I think, of Western media trying to produce this narrative around the Arab, right? Or like the singular sort of identity, which it just sounds like racism. Mind you, that's the stuff that like gets the band really great press. But then you're just like, I can't, I can't like, I can't be okay with this. Like, Mm. I am not the sound of that. Like, I don't want to be the sound of that. Yeah, you don't have um, any intention to be the sound of... No, I don't want to represent anything but myself. Um, if people relate, then great. But, like, again, there's this double burden on, on Arab musicians and Arab artists in general to sort of just, like, speak for your people. You know what I mean? Where, like, 
you know, you're either supposed to justify fanaticism and quote unquote terrorism and whatever it is, or justify why you don't fit into that narrative. And they're both like, the, you know, different sides of that same coin. And it's a super dangerous coin. But yeah, no, it's, it's just weird. I don't think people like really come up to like white European or American musicians and go like, hey, do you speak for your people? Like it's just not expected of them, right? Versus being, again, quote unquote, the other, where like you need to, I mean, to start with, you're only relevant if you're speaking for everyone else who who falls into that identity. Otherwise, you know, we don't really care for you. We're not going to listen to your music or write about it unless you're speaking for the Arab world, which is super weird. And then, you know, justify the Arab world. Explain it to us in like a couple of sentences in this interview. And it's like, I'm not a political analyst. And the Arab world is not one thing. No, so of course. It's yeah. furthest from the truth. I mean, yeah. And is it also because you're openly gay and your sexuality has been like very much like prominent within the music and within the press around your music. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh, look at this liberal rock band out of Lebanon right. with their gay lead singer. Do you feel like you're objectified in that sense? Like very much so. Look, in a lot of in a lot of places, you know, let's be real about it. You know, the situation as far as human rights are concerned in the Middle East is pretty freaking atrocious. All right. Um, especially when it comes to like gender and sexuality and all that stuff. It's just not, you know, it's not okay. But we can't start pretending like it's okay here because it's not. It's not okay in the States. It's really not. It's not okay in Europe. And that fanaticism exists everywhere. Sure, the numbers are different, but it's still there. So clearly, you know, whatever projects have been undertaken by the quote-unquote West to resolve these issues can't have been effective when such a like large percentage of the community is still extremely homophobic and extremely genderphobic. You know, that project hasn't worked. Right. Uh, but then to project all this anxiety onto like the Arab other of just like, oh, look, you guys are so primitive. You don't have gay rights. When it's like, oh, wait, I don't necessarily buy into your version of gay rights either, because one, I don't think it's worked so well for you. And two, I have a lot of problems with, you know, the way gay rights operate here at this point, which is to just depoliticize queerness as much as possible and make it as akin to, you know, its heterosexual counterpart as possible. Mind you, it's the same issue with like, you know, transsexual rights and gender liberties and whatever. It's weird that, like, we get so much exposure for that in music writing, right? Like, I'll show up for an interview with a music magazine, and they want to talk to me about that instead of talking to me about my actual entry point to the world, which is being a musician. Like, this is what I do. I wake up in the morning, and I think about writing, and I think about chord progressions, and I research poetry so I can get inspired and find myself in other people's writing and then find a way to express myself. Like, it's a grueling, very long process that I undergo. I never once wake up and say, hey, how can I be gay today? Right? Like, that's not what I want to talk to you about. But at the same time, you know, it's also just a, a really big opportunity to have that platform to draw people's attention to that stuff, which is why, you know, like, which is why I started with the situation in the Middle East isn't that great. You know, it's a bittersweet position to be in where, like, I realize how this can be really great. But I also think it's a little bit dangerous. I have like a lighter question to ask now. Let's shift. <laughs> Your song, Lil Watan, discusses the way we are taught to acquiesce to the status quo and the apathy that we are rewarded for in Lebanese politics. Is mm -hmm. that true? Yeah. Okay. Um, First of all, can you elaborate on that? And secondly, can you explain um, your choice of the video? What does the video mean? It's a belly dancing woman right. pretty much the whole time. Well, for starters, I think the right person to ask about the video would be the director. But I can tell you what he was going for, which is basically to just like, you know, again, bring up that canon of stuff. It's basically the video is essentially sort of pastiche, right? It looks like these late 80s, mid 90s um, Lebanese pop videos that you'd see on like Teddy Liban or whatever. Exactly. Um, 
And it, it honestly looks like that. The lighting, the like kitschy-ass curtains in the back, all of that. Um, and it just, you know, again, plays into that narrative of just producing this like cultural pastiche over and over and over again, where you see this belly dancer and she takes center stage, although there's like an entire band on stage that you basically only see for about 20 seconds intermittently and mostly by like how they engage with that dancer. I mean, he was he was obviously just like trying to be, I think, like pretty tongue in cheek about like just bringing up the stuff that's been super normalized and to just like really sort of showcase it you know, epitomize it and then showcase that to sort of maybe criticize how these things get normalized. But I think he was he was sort of just like trying to talk about something within the industry to criticize something that isn't about the industry. Um, the song itself is about, you know, also that, that just like this idea that like, you know, in Lebanon, because because the politics are so complicated and so affected by like these monolithic issues and the, like regional issues, like the relationship to Syria and, you know, internal Syrian politics and the Arab-Israeli conflict and then you know, Saudi and Iran, so basically the U.S. and Russia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, everything is so complicated that you can't actually do anything on even, like, the smaller, like, personal levels in Lebanon. Like, you can't bring up gay rights without bringing up the sectarian system. You can't bring up the sectarian system without bringing up the Arab-Israeli conflict and the Syrian issue and the Iran-Saudi issue and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, all of these, all of these conflicts are around every corner. So then what people end up doing is just, like, you know, you're expected to just eventually learn to live with it. Um, and just, like, endure stuff and go out and party and constantly present this, like, image of Lebanon as this party destination, right? The quote-unquote province town of the Middle East, the whatever, like, all this stuff that you keep reading in articles. That's just bullshit. Like, people will talk about it like it's a party city when essentially people people drink that hard because they're escaping shit. Um, and people drink that hard because they're also in social settings, and that's where we negotiate this stuff in the absence of political representation, everything is undertaken socially in Lebanon. But I mean, you know, you're just expected to do that, to just like give up on everything, be super apathetic. If you bring up issues, you're sort of like reprimanded for it, like, oh, look, he's a fucking radical. Uh, when you're not, like you're saying basic stuff, like a woman should have the right to give her children a passport. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway. You were very vocal about the You Stink movement in mm -hmm. Lebanon. Um, do you want to tell our listeners who don't really know a lot about what's going on uh, in Lebanon right now regarding politics and then i mean it's it's touted as this like trash problem but it's it's, um, it's emblematic it of a larger deeper, it runs yeah. much deeper than the trash problem because of all of the issues that i was talking about a minute ago where like everything is around every corner in lebanon but basically the government is ridiculously corrupt it's like at this point the entire government has not been um elected right they just renewed their own um term for the last four years we haven't had a president in about a year and a half. It might be longer, actually. And, you know, like, nothing nothing gets addressed. 
None of these like basic services that a government should provide are addressed. Healthcare, um, legal support, um, 24-hour electricity. I mean, it's 2015, right? People still have to wake up sometimes at 3 in the morning to do the laundry because that's when the power comes, right? Um, and it's ridiculous. Um, and I think people just really don't understand what it means to live like that. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's really, really difficult. The traffic situation and then, you know, the environment. Don't even get me started with, like, all the other stuff that's been happening. But this is just, like, this is one situation where stuff got so extreme that people finally started taking to the streets, which was um, the government just could not figure out a way to actually collect the garbage properly, um, let alone, mind you, like, deal with, you know, like, waste management in an environmentally sound whatever fashion afterwards. Um, that wasn't going to happen. But they weren't even picking it up, so people were, like, drowning in garbage for a while. And then people started taking to the streets to just, like, try and get people to act on this stuff because of all the, like, potential public health disasters. And, you know, what the what the government ended up, ended up doing is just, like, beating up the protesters. So stuff just kept getting more and more violent, and then it grew into something that's much bigger than the garbage crisis, which is amazing because it has been an issue, you know, like for me as someone who's been going to, like, anti-sectarianism protests in Lebanon over the last decade, the biggest issue I think has been to get, you know, these protests to grow past sort of like the upper middle class secular elites of the country. And what was happening at these protests is amazing, is that you got, you know, elements of the working class who, you know, historically have been the most dependent on uh, political leadership, on like, you know, um, corrupt political leadership and uh, patronage to just like let go of it and take to the street and join these protests. And it, you know, it stirred up a lot of shit. It, you know, I think con confronted a lot of people with, you know, the amount of elitism that's actually inherent to even that activist elite, um, the amount of sectarianism that goes into that, you know, the the, the obvious relationship between sectarianism and, and class struggle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There was all this stuff that just like blew up and came right to the surface. But yeah, at this point, the crisis hasn't been resolved and it's been raining. So, I mean, shit's about to get really bad, right? People are actually discussing cholera outbreaks and all sorts of like weird medieval diseases that yeah. like... That only happened because you're treating your country like it's a medieval times. Yeah. So do you know Boots Riley? No. Boots Riley is this like super radical. Um, he's a rapper, first of all, from this group out of Oakland called The Coup mm -hmm. uh, since the 90s. But he's like really a active, like radically. Um, he's like known to be a communist, et cetera, whatever. Anyway, I went to see him talk and he's like very much an organizer. And he was one of the like main people out here during like Occupy in Oakland, which uh -huh. was one of the biggest in the country. And he was talking about he was like protests are bullshit. He's like, protests don't do anything. They like give visibility of like, oh, hey, we're out here protesting this issue. But what it comes down to and what he's like a strong believer of is organizing. Mm -hmm. And so it takes like workers need to organize and strike. Right. People sure. need to like get together and shut now, stuff down. OK, so it's happening in Lebanon. This is what's been happening now. People have been like, I mean, we know this, right? We know protests. Protests in a lot of ways are as good as a concert, right? Like they're not actually going to change the situation. But mind you, with this particular situation, at least at the beginning, the protests did do a lot because I think people needed to see the way the government was actually treating the protesters. Um, and that wasn't going to happen until people like like tried to exercise a basic constitutional right to just protest. And then the government beat the crap out of them. Water jets, tear gas, actual like violence, right? Rubber bullets, close proximity, people died, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
And people needed to see that this is what the government is doing, that our government is actually as corrupt and totalitarian as other regional governments. And this myth that's been perpetuated in Lebanon that we are more democratic or more liberal or more open-minded is essentially just bullshit. We have an equally messed up government. They've renewed their own term. They're blatantly stealing the country's money. You know, 90, what was what was the actual number? 92, I think, 92 or 93% of all the wealth and spending power in the country is owned by 7% of the country. And then within that, it's basically owned by like 1% of that 7%, which is ridiculous, right? You're talking about a country with 35% of the community being below the poverty line. We're talking not eating, right? Let alone the rest of it. And then the middle class is just like barely existent. Everything. It's just like it's a mess of a country and this is how our government operates. And for people to see that violence actually happening on the streets, I think was a necessary push to try and, you know, gather popular support, which is the only way a movement like that can push forward is you need popular support. You need people to actually understand that this is how the politicians are behaving. And there's no other way to do that when all the media outlets are controlled by the government um, or by different government, you know, parties and factions. But past that, I mean, I think the only way to move forward is a hardcore civil disobedience, right? Right. Um, which is what's been happening now. Like, they've been calling for all these protests. They've been telling people not to go to work. Uh, sorry, they haven't been calling for protests. They've been calling for strikes. They've been telling people not to go to work. Um, they've been telling people to stop paying taxes. There was this incredible, like, moment when people just, like, destroyed all the parking meters on the Quiniche. Um Sorry, the Quiniche is like this um, this coastal strip uh, with access to the sea in Beirut. Um, that, again, has been completely privatized because our government is that corrupt. So you're talking about a country where people can't access their own sea without paying about $50 to, you know, to literally just walk into a door to this privatized coastal strip. But anyway, so people broke all the parking meters. People started occupying these, like, privatized spaces, just, like, walking in, marching, bringing their own food. Right, I heard about Zaytuna, yeah. Zaytuna Bay. Well, Zaytuna Bay wasn't as impressive for me as Dalia. Dalia mm. was the last uh, remaining plot of land on the Corniche that, you know, people were being very vocal and very active about, you know, trying to keep public and accessible and whatever. And the government, like, basically just played around with them for a year and then privatized it anyway and put up this fence. So when people went into that and just like spent the day at the beach, it was just super moving to see that. With Zaytuna Bay, I mean, you're talking about something that's been turned into some sort of like outdoor mall, right? Like a Dubai version of stuff. And um, and what you know, when people walked in there and brought their own food and stuff like that, it just took it somewhere that was a bit different, right? It stopped being about policy violation and about like violating the constitution and became more about class struggle, which is interesting in its own right. But then there was also all these weird things that were happening in Zaytuna Bay in particular, which is um, the guy that owns um, the St. George Hotel, which is right across from there, um, was like at the Zaytuna Bay protests. And, you know, they, were, they, made him, they made him out to be some sort of like, you know, trophy figure for that, for that moment in time when this guy is basically doing stuff that's just as bad. And the only reason he's been sort of like revered that way is because he's also opposed Solidaire, which is the company that's been doing all this privatization. Oh, and this guy, Yeah, but this guy's, you know, He's just as bad. Right. You have to pay 30 bucks to walk into that pool, which also isn't okay. But. Right. So we grew up, we, we, we kind of grew up together, mm-hmm. so to speak. And we, we've come out of this space where in Lebanon, like artistically, it was kind of void a little bit. There wasn't much going on. Like I know there was like soap kills, which I, which I feel and I think, you know, you have been super inspired by soap mm-hmm. kills, right? And there was stuff like kind of happening as we were coming of age. 
But now I feel like there's such a movement, especially of like independent music, arts, art spaces, just a, a return to that, which Beirut was touted for like earlier mm-hmm. um, in the 20th century. Do you think that since we're moving in that direction artistically, do you feel like it might trickle down to like or trickle up to politics and maybe the future generations who are now growing up, like listening to Mashru mm. Alayla, living in a Beirut that is artistically thriving, even though it's politically damaged. Do you feel like it might actually lead to any sort of material change? I don't know. I mean, you know, again, <laughs> you're talking about this huge, huge structure that you kind of need to completely destroy before you can talk about any change and I you know I'd like to believe art can help with that but then I also just need to be real about stuff like I I doubt I doubt I you know I'll get to see that change in the next 10 years at least because there's all these sort of like overarching issues that need to be resolved about the region before you can talk about anything in Lebanon at the same time when you talk about all this stuff all these changes in like music and, and cultural production and stuff it's not like these things will necessarily inspire the youth to do things differently. It's that the reason the youth has been doing stuff differently and the reason that music is coming out is one and the same, right? Like there have to be larger sort of changes in the power structures that are creating Lebanese society as we know it and like all these like little power negotiations. All of that needs to be shifting for people to start thinking the way they do and then hence making the music that they're making now. You know what I mean? Like it's not, right. they're not separate like that. It's not that music will affect people or people will affect music. It's that both of them are coming from these bigger changes right. um, in power dynamics and in political structure. So, I mean, you know, so there is room for optimism, right? In theory, because obviously people are changing. If they weren't changing, they wouldn't be on the street right now, right? They wouldn't be so adamant about it. They wouldn't be so vocal about it. They wouldn't be trying to do all this stuff in Lebanon in particular. But then it's just an issue of how much power could they possibly get? And, you know, you never know. I know that you started, like, your band started as a workshop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, like, several people who came to jam together. And eventually you guys ended up with Mashura Leila. And so I wanted to know about your journey as a band. Like, did you ever expect such a level of success? At the beginning, no. Um, we also just weren't really looking for it, right? Like, the band was just supposed to be this thing that we do on the side while we finish up with school. Um, but then by the time... By the time we were all graduating, stuff was, you know, like shit got real. <laughs> and, um, and um, you know, the band obviously started taking more sort of importance for all of us. Like I I flunked an entire semester in college just because we were writing, we were writing the band's first album and like trying to get it done on time. I'm sorry, what were you studying in school? I was studying design um, and they were all doing architecture. We're basically in the same department. It's like a lot of the classes are shared, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's a very like theory oriented program. So we got like, we got a lot of that like sort of social theory and political theory because, you know, the, that department was basically more engaged, um, than other architecture departments are a lot of times. But anyway, slowly, you know, the band just picked up a lot of momentum. Um, and we thought, you know, like we thought it was conceivable that we could actually just survive as musicians. So at some point we we all quit our jobs so that we could invest all our time into the band. We were like living with our families, not going out, looking pretty ratchet. It was like rough for, for a year. And then at this point, like we, you know, we sort of like live off the band. And it's been going well. Like playing this tour has been like a, you know, like a bit of a moment for all of us. 
sound like Mariah Carey and I said, I'm it. But, like, <laughs> <laughs> but it's your first uh, U.S. tour? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you, I just want you to reflect a little, like, you guys started from a place where I can relate to and have reached, you know, a point of just like a grueling schedule of performances. And how do you feel right now? It's pretty good. Um, <laughs> it's also exhausting, right? I mean, it's it's difficult um, being in all these cities and not getting to actually see the cities, right? Like you, it's hotel venue, hotel venue, hotel venue, airport, hotel venue, hotel venue, hotel venue, airport, over and over and over again. But you get, you know, like an extra day here and there, um, like today. You know, it's just, it's a it's a lot of fun. Obviously, it's a lot of like pressure and responsibility as well. But I mean, it's great. Like I, I have everything I've ever wanted, sort of career wise. Um, like I get to wake up and do exactly what I've always wanted to do. Like you know, from high school. Oh, I like know. I've, oh, I know. It's always been like <laughs> that thing, right? I was that obnoxious kid who just sang incessantly in hallways, and it wasn't you know, like annoying it's just, though. It's, it's, it's it wasn't... always what I've wanted. <laughs> it was um, never annoying because your voice is incredible. So it's always like, you. oh, cool, Hamid, yeah. this thing, like, yeah. Thanks, but You're... no, honestly, it's just always been what I wanted. Um, That's amazing. So I mean, getting to do this at this point, you know, like all the all the other stuff is um, is a f- more than fair payoff, I think, to like be this exhausted and like have rough incomes in a lot of places and whatever. I mean, it's fine. It's well worth it. So your fourth album, Ibn al is coming out. Um, when is it coming out? End of November. End of November. So we look forward to that. And there's a, uh, there's a track on there, Magawir. <laughs> And I'm actually really excited about the sound you guys are moving into. Like, you know, being there from the beginning with you guys, just listening to you guys, I hear you growing and it's really nice. And I feel like I remember you expressing some frustration of like, you're not really making what the sound that you want to make early, earlier on. And I I think, I don't know, I I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like you're moving in the direction that you've wanted to be moving in, uh, Um, musically speaking. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I can't speak for the whole band, but it just feel like there's more like cohesion in the sound the cohesion yeah for sure i think we i think we started just like working towards that with with the third album the difference this time though is just like it's a it's a much more personal album like you know normally you know what i'm like like i want to talk about this stuff all the time i want to talk about like politics and society and gender and bring up judith butler as much as i can as as pretentious as possible but like um this was an album that we wrote like basically during the two years after my father passed away so it was just like i was completely consumed by that without even knowing that I was just mourning. So it's it's a very personal album, which is dangerous, right, at this point in time because you're talking about, like, probably the most hyper-political moment in the region and, like, we're releasing this thing. It's just like, oh, look, I have feelings. Um, <laughs> I'm a little scared about that. But at the same time, it's just like, it is what it is. It's, it's the only thing it could have been. Sound-wise, with the last album, you know, we started paying much more attention to just, like, composition instead of like individual virtuosity right um it stopped being about like having this huge violin solo and having this huge vocal solo and having any guitar solos you know it wasn't about that it was just about getting interesting chord progressions seeing how these things can move well how we can record these things more interestingly what you know what stuff we can actually get in the studio from recording process and and mastering whatever so then you know again over like the last two years we've just been paying a lot more attention to production in places that like you know you 
in places that were sort of atypical for us, like when that Beyonce album dropped, we all like freaked the fuck out because the production is just insane, right? It's amazing. It's so good. Um, Wait, can you explain? Like, I do listen to Beyonce, but I'm not. The production on that album is so good. Which Honestly, album? the way the um, Beyonce. Oh, Linda. <laughs> which album? The Beyonce I'm, fans are gonna come for you. I know. The, I'm. What do you mean? Which, I have most, my issues with Beyonce, but anyway, go why? on. The most recent. Oh, let's not get into Beyonce. There's gonna be another. Know. Like, yeah, this is like, like she's, show. she's like MIA. She's like an endless pit of discourse. Right? It's like, don't even go <laughs> yeah. there. Um, um, Beyonce but, dropped an album like two years ago called i think it was just called beyonce yep like anything in pop culture right now is influenced by whatever beyonce did two yeah. years ago yeah okay oh, okay wow i'm out of it it is um, all good um yeah. okay so anyway so we've just been paying a lot more attention to that stuff um and with this album you know because all of that was you know a lot of the content is about sort of just like sentiment and and personal you know escapisms a lot of it is just about like being in clubs in beirut and trying to negotiate you know my own personal drama and at the same time dealing with stuff like gender and gun control and, you know, the stuff that you actually have to live through in Lebanon. Because all of that, you know, a lot of that is happening at night, the sound is just much more sort of like dance-driven and pop-driven and whatever. It's very self-consciously sort of composed like that. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quite excited about the sound. There's a lot of stuff on there that I'm, like, super excited about. Right. Um, it sounds, I mean, from the one track I heard... I'm really excited about it. And for our listeners who don't know Arabic, Ibn al-Layl translates to son of the night. Yeah. And that's why Hamid was referring to events that happen at night. Well, yeah, I mean, that name, you know, essentially refers to a lot of stuff. Um, when son of the night also sounds like something that comes out of mythology, right? So we were considering having a translated version called Litis, um, which is like the Roman mythological equivalent of the son of the night. But then we're just like, cheese balls, right? Like, no. <laughs> um, so, you know, that that name is about you know, sort of like being the son of something that you sort of notice in absence. Um, you know, again, dealing with my father and, and grief and mourning and whatever. Um, it's also just like, it sort of sounds like party boy when you say it in Arabic. Um, maybe it doesn't translate as readily when you say son of the night, but like Ibn al just sounds like saying party boy. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of the album is about being at these parties and just like being miserable in the middle of all of that and trying to, you know, observe the country through the lens of your own grief. Um, and again, you know, just bringing up that, mythology stuff because there's a lot of that on the album as well even with Magawir there's a part with like a reference to like Aries and Adonis and you know the the gendered aspect of that mythology you referred to like feeling sort of bad about releasing an album about your feelings in a highly politicized time that I feel like that kind of goes to the heart of like we're constantly politicized as Arabs like we're not allowed to just yeah. release an album about our feelings right. because and it's probably like the most fitting time because it's such a hard thing personally for for everybody to watch the events that are happening mm -hmm. what i meant sort of is is more that like a lot of it a lot of a lot of the stuff on the album and mind you i've always written like this right i'm, I'm not I'm, i've never wanted to sound like a newspaper if i'm going to write about political events i'm obviously going to like sort of localize them you know like just place the locus of things on an individual level and how people react to things because i think that's where politics essentially come from and come at right like it's it's all there it's the personal is political but this is an album that like is you know sort of just like very removed from dealing with sort of collective experience in a lot of places which is you know the thing the thing that scares me about it but at the same time that fear is just like something that i i feel i should confront like that like it's just you know i've always just wanted to write about what i want to write about and this is the first time where i feel like that might be dangerous but that's a good thing for me i think um, when you say dangerous, what do you mean? Dangerous in the sense where I haven't been this much at um, odds with, I think, what people expect of us before. 
you know, because I just was that guy, this is a moment where I just needed to move away from that for a bit and deal with my own shit. Okay, so Ibn al-Lil is coming out November 28th. You uh-huh. guys should check that out. Um, Hamid, what are the social media sites people can catch Mishra Layla or you it's on? Mishra.com or on Facebook and Twitter as well um, and Instagram. Um, Mishra Layla Graham on Instagram. Um, and uh, there's a there's a microsite for the website called ibnalil.com and there's mishralayla.com, which is where we post all our shit. Great. Hamid, thank you so much for coming Thank you in. for having thank me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Arabiyat. You can email us at arabiyat.podcast at gmail.com. That's A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T dot podcast at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter at Arabiyat and on Facebook.com slash Arabiyat Podcast. Our theme song is by Mukata. The track is called Ahyat. Follow him on SoundCloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T. Lamma tasma'ne bimreitak Am 